Luke 2 and the 40th verse. And beloved, it is my delight to remind you that this is the infallible, the inerrant word of our God. Beloved, there are so many words that you and I encounter in the course of a week. There are so many things that are thrown at us, and none of them are stable. But this is a sure word, a word that never fades. And beloved, it's our privilege and our duty to sit under it and to hear it conscionably. And so hear God's word, Luke 2 and starting at verse 40. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Amen. May the Lord bless us under his word this morning. Our text is just the 40th verse. And... The child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Beloved, before we come to that 40th verse, I want to remind you of something that I've I've said to you time and again as we've taken up the various gospel accounts that we have. And that is that here the writers, the inspired historians, are setting before us a picture of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God. Christ, who is not just an idea, not just a series of doctrines, but who is a living Christ. At every point, beloved, the Gospel writers emphasize this in various ways. And if we're reading the Gospels aright, that's precisely, precisely the tone, precisely the theme that we pick up on. They're introducing us to the person of Jesus Christ. But beloved, I would remind you that this morning, the person of whom we read, the Christ upon whom we'll meditate this morning, is a person but not just a historical person. 
We are here contemplating a person who is alive today. And beloved, what is the entailment that flows from that? Knowing that our Christ now is a living Christ with a beating and human heart. Oh, beloved, I'll tell you one entailment is very simple. You and I are to be very careful in how we think of him. Christ is not a person who can be molded by our own imaginations. Beloved, if we get this wrong, if we get this wrong, there are dire consequences. Because our Christ is a real person, a living Christ today. And our obligation is to know him as he is. And so we approach the text in that way, to know the Christ who is. And as we do so, beloved, I'd remind you that the gospel accounts have been giving to us, both Matthew and in Luke, as we've looked at them, really the inception of his, of his early years on earth. But what's striking is we are given very little detail. Some detail, yes, but little detail comparatively. In fact, as you look at our text this morning, Christ emerges not the child who was carried into Egypt, not the child of just 40 days old as he was in the temple, but a Christ who is advanced at least to the year, to, to 12 years old. We know nothing. The gospel writers under the Spirit's inspiration have given us nothing between those times. But beloved, what we do have, what we do have, as Luke reminds us in chapter 1, is what we need to have. What we need to have, remember the gospel writer tells us, is that account that is from above. And so it's wrong to speculate to try to fill in the gaps that the Spirit of God has simply left open. We are told, even in this text, what must be known. Now, Christian, as we think about this, what are we told? As we look at this 40th verse, as we come to this gospel account, you'll notice, beloved, that there's a sense in which this forms a bridge. This links the two different accounts that Luke has given to us together. But, beloved, it would be wrong for us, it would be very wrong for us to read this quickly and to forget what is said here. What you have here is an incredible statement. The first is, the child grew. The child grew. In the original, as much as in our translation, the meaning is basic. He grew, he progressed, he matured as a man. And then the text says, and waxed strong in spirit. That is, again, he increased by degrees in his spirit. As we'll find here, the emphasis is his mind. He was one filled with wisdom. And obviously, beloved, as you hold verse 40 together with what follows, it's that last point that the gospel writer is emphasizing. The emphasis is this is a, this is a child who is growing, but one who is filled with wisdom. But we're also told at the very last line that as the child grew, the grace of God was upon him. The sense there being that tokens of God's pleasure were upon him. As he matured, as he progressed by degrees as a man, Luke tells us 
manifestations of God's pleasure were upon him and, by implication, known to others. Now, as we hold verse 40 together with what follows, you'll understand the importance of this text. This text is going to show to us, of course, why we have Christ in the temple and men marveling at his wisdom. Because the Christ that's presented in those verses is a child of 12 years old who confounds not the wisdom of the world only, but he even causes those in the church, those who are aged scholars in the church, to marvel. Obviously, verse 40 gives us some explanation as to why they are so so taken aback by one who is so manifestly wise and yet so young. But beloved, if we remember how this text and really all of Luke's gospel sets before us Christ's humanity, we find that this is not just a connecting link between these two accounts. This is holding forth the reality the reality of Christ's incarnation, that the divine Son of God actually became man, remaining what he always was, but taking upon himself true humanity still. And so what's striking is, as you read Luke's Gospel, he provides us a glimpse of Christ in his infancy, Christ as a child, Christ, generally in his adolescence. Christ, growing as a man. And beloved, the theme from this 40th verse then is simple. It is just that under God's favor, Christ grew in his humanity. Under God's favor, Christ grew in his humanity. And I want us to consider that under three headings. I want us to first see how the text shows us the growth of Christ. And we see that in the very first line. The child grew and waxed strong in spirit. Now, friend, you remember, as we go back to the very end of chapter 1 in Luke's Gospel, something very similar is said of John the Baptist. You remember there, the text tells us pointedly, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. Express words. But beloved, what do we find then? We find that Luke, as he writes as the inspired historian, is drawing a parallel between Christ and John. Our Christ grew and he matured as a man. And if you look at verse 52 of Luke 2, you'll find that the idea is just as Christ grows in stature, so he grows even in mind. The emphasis, beloved, is pointed, and we can't miss this. The emphasis Luke would have us see here is that Christ's humanity was a true humanity. And as we see Christ maturing in this, again, if you look at Luke 2.52, you find here one who, as the gospel writer tells us, increased in wisdom. And stature. Our Christ took upon himself humanity in such a way that he would increase. But beloved, is that not staggering? Is it not staggering at all to us, having read what we have already in the first chapter of this gospel? 
I mean, what, what, did, what did the angel tell Mary? And Mary was told pointedly, this one will be called Son of the Most High, His name will be called Holy, He will be called the Son of God. And yet, in Luke's Gospel, we find Him nursed, fed. We find Him swaddled. This is the One who is the Divine Son of God. Again, as Nicaea reminds us, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And yet in the very self-same book, we have a mark that Christ Himself grows really as a man. Has taken upon Himself true humanity to the point of being swaddled, fed, and nursed. And at this point, maturing by degrees. Beloved, what you have in this account is really... A historical picture of that truth that we saw before in the epistle to the Hebrews. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He would be made so like his brethren that he would take upon himself even these characteristics. That he would even mature as a man in his humanity. And so, Christian, think about the union, just for a moment, between Christ and his people. See here, beloved, the, the Son of God, the one who is the Ancient of Days, here growing, says Luke, a child, growing in stature as well as in spirit. Beloved, this should lead us to marvel, shouldn't it? That the one who could say, as he does in Proverbs 8, counsel is mine and sound under, unsound wisdom, I am understanding, is one who's described by Luke as waxing strong in spirit, growing, maturing by degrees, and again in Luke 2.52, increasing in wisdom. Beloved, that explains for us what the apostle means. When he says, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Beloved, our Christ assumed humanity really, remaining and retaining all the divine glory that belongs to his person, but nevertheless in his humanity was pleased that that glory would be so veiled that he would mature by degrees, that he would grow, as it were, by steps, mature as a man. This is why the Westminster Confession of Faith is so emphatic. When the fullness of time was come, Christ did take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. He was really man. You cannot get away from that as you read the gospel account. The humanity he assumed was true. But beloved, as you look at this text, you see here then a Christ who is maturing, not just physically, but one who's waxing strong in spirit, whose mind, which is the emphasis of the text, whose mind is maturing, his human mind growing, increasing in wisdom. And how can we understand this then? 
If he remains the eternal son of God, and there is nothing in the divine wisdom that can be either diminished or increased, how can we speak of the divine son here growing in wisdom? How can we speak of him waxing strong in spirit if he is the infinite and the eternal God? Well, Christian, there's a very simple explanation to this. Christ here is growing as a man. And when we think of his growth in humanity, we're supposed to understand, first of all, the idea is is that here he is growing under the influence of the Spirit of God who conducts those graces that belong to the divine person to his humanity such that the human nature remains human. It doesn't become a third thing. But it is the case, beloved, that in this text you have a Christ who is under the ministry of the Spirit, receiving these gifts of wisdom and graces. Our older theologians were very clear on this. When we speak of the growth of Christ and the gifts that belong to his humanity, it was such that his humanity was perfected, but his, that is, his humanity was never deified. The point is, beloved, in this text you have Christ growing and maturing. As one, one of our theologians put it, coming to his acme. This was the design of God. We see this, that he increases because, of course, the Spirit of God is conducting those graces to his human nature. But we also see that he grows in wisdom through experience. We see this, beloved, taught to us emphatically in the text that we read in Hebrews 5. The text reads, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was, never, he was never ignorant to any of God's commands. Such was the nature between the, such was the nature of the union between the divine person and the human nature. So what does that text mean in Hebrews 5? That he learned obedience. As Owen puts it here, he learned obedience, that is, experienced in himself what difficulty it was attended with. Beloved, the idea is that Christ, as he took upon himself humanity, would be instructed by experiential knowledge. Not just that his mind would know the commands themselves, but that he would know by personal experience as a man, what obedience and what suffering would entail. When the gospel writer tells us that the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, beloved, the point is that this was indeed part of his humiliation. The eternal wisdom of God never decreased, can never increase because it is perfect. But the divine son took upon himself human nature in such a way that he would mature by degrees. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way, though he were a son, he learned obedience and that through suffering. That is, though he were God's peculiar son, he laid aside privilege and made himself such took upon himself true humanity, even to this extent. And beloved, you see this in his ministry. 
you see Christ. You see him dependent upon the ministry of the Spirit of God willingly. It's a striking thing. We've lost this Christologically, haven't we? We've lost this in our theology. That our Christ made himself so dependent, took upon himself such such a servant-like form, that he would be driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. That he would, in himself, be preventing the morning with his prayers, even after a long ministry. That he would be a man who would go, as the writer says, offering up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Beloved, when we think of the humanity of Christ, all of these texts should be before us. He remains all that he ever was. But beloved, he actually took upon himself humanity that he might redeem man. And beloved, how low then did Christ stoop to redeem you? How low did he stoop that he might save you? As we look at this text, we can't miss that the emphasis is on the fact that our Christ grows. But there's another emphasis we can't miss either, and that is the second point, and that is the greatness. The greatness of Christ's wisdom. The text says that he, at 12 years old, was filled with wisdom. And, beloved, do you understand here that, of course, here we're speaking of the human mind of Christ. Here we're speaking of, man, of Christ and his humanity. But the emphasis is extraordinary. At age 12, he would confound even the wise men in the church. At age 12, he would be so filled with wisdom, even as a man, that those in the church would marvel. Well, but don't miss this. It is the, it is the fact that Christ grew as a man, but he grew extraordinarily. He grew extraordinarily as a perfect man. This is, beloved, true normalcy. You understand, sin is not normal. Sin is common, but sin is not normal to man. Foolishness is not normal to man. It's common. It's found in the sons of men. But this is normalcy. This is what man ought to be. A man without infirmity, without, without, dog, without being dogged by sin. B.B. Warfield put it this way. He says, here in this text you find the only strictly normal human development from birth to manhood that the world has ever seen. Beloved, what you have in this text is, yes, the exemplar of our faith, doing the work that was necessary to be our Redeemer. But here you have really the definition of what normalcy ought to be. Man should have been filled with wisdom. But he fell. Here we have Christ, yes, growing as a man, but without sin. And though the knowledge of Christ, his human mind would not be infinite, because the finite can never hold the infinite. Yet these graces, as one of, our, one of our older theologians put it, were given to the human nature of Christ in order that it might be superior to angels and men. This is extraordinary. The gifts that were communicated to his humanity 
are unparalleled. And why? Oh, beloved, because, as another one of our theologians puts it, in Christ there is such abundance which suffices not only for himself alone, but also for others, making making nothing equal to it that could occur among men. What you find, beloved, in this text is a Christ who is extraordinarily gifted, even in his humanity, to do the work of redemption, and unparalleled in every regard. So much so that his gifts of wisdom, so much so that all of the gifts of the graces that flow from that union make him unlike angels and men, though he remains true man. What we find here, beloved, is a picture of Christ, the strong man. It's what we sang in Psalm 89. I have laid help upon one that is mighty, that is one that is sufficient and able to the task, and singularly so. A Christ who really, even in its humanity, is fully furnished and able to do all that is necessary. The strong man who's described for us in Matthew 12, who even spoils the devil's house. Well, that's the picture of Christ that we have here. One gifted and filled with wisdom beyond all others. And as our God-man. As our Redeemer. But I want us to close this morning by looking at that, that final line. And that is the grace of God being upon him. The sense is that there are tokens of divine favor. There are tokens of blessing that are falling upon Christ in this stage of development. But, beloved, I want you to notice that there Luke Luke tells us nothing of what those tokens were. He simply says that the pleasure of God, that is the idea, the pleasure of God was upon him. Now, beloved, when we think of this, and we find here the Gospel writer telling us that Christ grew in his humanity under God's pleasure, what does he mean? Well, of course, he means that the divine Son of God was always the Father's delight. You you see this in the text. There, wisdom says, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. Christ says, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The idea, beloved, is that from eternity, the Son of God was always the Father's delight, and rightfully so, because He's infinitely delighting. He is one who is infinitely lovely and worthy of the the Father's affection. And so, beloved, you find Christ praying thus. He says, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He was eternally, beloved, for eternity, the divine Son was always the Son in whom the Father was well pleased. And so when we come to a text like this, where we find the divine Son of God incarnate, we're not surprised at all that the Father sends tokens of divine pleasure to to remind the world of His delight in the Son. But is there something more? And beloved, I'd suggest to you this morning there certainly is. I want you to notice how Christ describes his mission. 
In John 5.30 he says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Christ was sent on mission by the Father to do this work. And Christian, that then explains for us, doesn't it, why Christ says that he does in John 10.17, that therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. Oh, beloved, there was nothing that the eternal Son of God needed to do being infinitely lovely in himself to warrant the Father's love. But in John 10, when we hear that Christ says pointedly, therefore doth my Father love me, he is saying pointedly that as his people's Redeemer, the Father takes such great delight in him as he holds this office, that Christ can say that his Father loves him because he lays down his life for his sheep. Beloved, what you have here in this text is not just the general statement that the Father always delights in his eternal Son. But you have here a picture that Christ is delighted in as he takes upon himself the work of redemption. Christian, remember what I just said to you, the point previous. That meant that his glory would be so veiled for a time that though he is wisdom eternal, the eternal Logos, he would grow and increase as a man. And the text says that in so doing, the father delighted. The father delighted even that his son will be brought to such an estate of humiliation. Take upon himself such, such the likeness of his people that he might save them. What you have in this text, Christian, is just a picture of what Christ himself said. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It was the Father's pleasure for Christ to take upon himself true humanity even all of the infirmities that belong to it without sin, that he might redeem you. These tokens of divine favor that we read of in this text then are tokens of God's delight in the work of redemption. Beloved, it was God's pleasure for Christ to be incarnate, enter humiliation, suffer tiredness, Weakness, hunger, abuse, soul distress, and nothing less than the torments of hell that he might redeem his own. For you who believe, Christian, he spared not his own son for you. And our text tells us he even delighted as his son underwent all to secure your everlasting joy. As we close, Christian, just a few points of application. This text speaks to us much about the person of Christ. And beloved, I know that there are themes that we've discussed this morning that hardly anyone talks about these days. But these are so, so crucial. Understanding the person of Jesus Christ 
as he has taken upon himself true humanity while remaining the eternal Son of God. Beloved, it is this doctrine that he says himself in Matthew 16 that is the rock upon which the church is built. This is crucial, beloved, for you and for me. Knowing our Christ more deeply is simply, simply necessary. And knowing him as he is presented to us in the word is indispensable. It's indispensable for the church's being, says Christ. It is upon this that the church is built. Christian, do you not also see that this is indispensable for your comfort as well? I mean, beloved, do you see this Christ? If you're in Christ, what is this text told out to you? That he was pleased to enter into such a lowly state. That as the writer of the Hebrews puts it in chapters 2 and 4, he might be your sympathetic high priest. And also, that he is so equipped, even in his humanity, to do all that is necessary as a man to secure your redemption. He would be so equipped with wisdom and knowledge, as we've seen even weeks before, that he would know you, love you, redeem you. And beloved, is it nothing that this is the Christ who remains? even this morning, our living Christ. Beloved, our text holds out to us a Christ who is so, made so much like his people, yet without sin. And we're told in the text that for everlasting years, he will remain, remain God and man for the sake of his own. Beloved, this should throw our soul and should be a boon of comfort, comfort to us. And so as we leave this text, Christian, the exhortation, of course, first of all, both to the Christian and to the unbeliever, entrust yourself to a whole and to a merciful Christ this morning. Beloved, it's his offer that is in this text because it is his presentation of himself that we have in his word. He is willing to come so close to sinners, as we see in this text. And so do not refuse, as he offers himself to you. But Christian, also take this text as we should. Take this as an antidote to pride. Beloved, here is lowliness. And so here is your pattern. Taking upon himself the form of a servant, though he is, of course, master of all. Growing by degrees in his humanity, though in his divine person he remains the infinite and eternal wisdom of God. Beloved, this should kill our pride. But also, beloved, it should kill our pride because we find here humanity perfected. As Warfield reminds us, here we have a picture of manhood that the world has never seen. Normal human development as it ought to have been. And beloved, how, how distorted are we? 
At 12, he was filled with wisdom. Beloved, I wonder, will any of us, even on our deathbeds in advanced years, have the same set of eyes? Beloved, this should be for our humility. Here we see our need for Christ. And so, beloved, meditate. Meditate upon the Christ who is set before us. And may this, may this, under the ministry of the Spirit, lead us to more Christ-likeness and cause us to flourish for his own namesake. Amen.